You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, where I went to college, there was a park that on sunny days, girls would go to to study and to lay out. And so guys developed a strategy. They would come to that park with the cutest dogs possible. And the idea was that these dogs would get a girl's attention. They'd go, oh, and start to pet the puppy. And that was your way in to a conversation. They'd go like, oh, he's so sweet. And he's like, yeah, yeah, like me. And then off you would go, hopefully into a glorious future. But uh, I had a roommate that wanted to be one of those guys because he wanted to date one of those girls. And so he needed one of those dogs. And I remember as he told us about his plan, we told him, don't do this. Uh, this was a roommate that could barely feed and clothe himself. We're like, don't bring a dog into whatever it is you have going on. But um, he had a vision, was undeterred. And so he went out, and I'll never forget the day, he brought back this gorgeous animal. And I say animal because she was three-fourths wolf, uh, which you're like, how is that even possible? I don't know. I know it's not legal, though. Learned that. Uh, but she was gorgeous, and I'll never forget the day came where I was sitting in the living room, and my roommate comes prancing in, uh, holding a uh, leash in one hand, tennis ball in the other, and he said, it's time to go to the park. And they left, so excited, and then a surprisingly short amount of time later, I heard the door open, and the wolf trots in, smiling, and my roommate kind of stumbles in, flushed, and sort of collapses into this chair next to me. And I'm like, dude, what happened to you? And he proceeded to tell me what went down at the park. He showed up there, and sure enough, there was a field filled with attractive ladies. And so he took his dog and released it from the leash and sort of lobbed the ball lazily into their midst. And uh, the wolf ran right past the ball into the bushes, which was not entirely his goal. But then he heard next to him, wow, that's a lovely dog you have there. And he turned, and it was like an 80-something-year-old man who's a dog lover. And he was like, this wasn't really my goal here. Uh, but they started talking about breeding and whatnot. And so they're having this conversation. And as while they're doing it, suddenly from across the field of dreams, he hears screaming. And so he turns, and there in the midst of all the ladies is his wolf, uh, carrying not the ball that he'd thrown, but uh, a cute, fuzzy bunny. Um, that was bleeding, and the wolf had come up with a new game entitled Throw the Bunny in the Air, and as it lands and struggles for life, pounce on it again and rip into it. And so suddenly, what had been this beautiful, serene environment suddenly was filled with crying and screaming, girls burying their faces in the shoulders of their friends to divert their eyes from the horror. And so my buddy had to run out into the midst of that, finish off the rabbit, pick up his dog, and go running from the scene. And shortly thereafter, he uh, gave the wolf away to a lovely family of four. Now, question. What went wrong? What went wrong? Yeah, it was a wolf. Looked like a dog. Fur, four legs. But it wasn't a dog. It was a wolf. And so not only did it fail him, it was destructive. Now, why bring that up? 
because Paul here is going to say that there's a version of spirituality that's the same. It looks like the real thing, but it's not. And if you participate in it, not only will it fail you, it's destructive. Uh, we can illustrate it this way. If, if I was to say to you, uh, what does it mean to be Christian? Or, or, or if you wanted to back it up from that, what, is it, what does a godly person or a spiritual person look like? I think if we ask many people in this room or many of your friends, if you ask them, what, what does a spiritual person look like? They would instinctively start to make a list. Well, a spiritual person or a godly person or a Christian person, they would not do these sorts of things. They, they don't go to these places. They don't use these kind of words. They don't, they don't say this kind of stuff or do these sorts of things. But, but they do these other things. They go to these kinds of uh, assemblies and they read these kind of, this kind of literature and they say these sorts of things. And, and we would sort of assemble a list. It's that if you do these things and don't do these things, then you are a spiritual person. And yet there's a problem with that version of spirituality. If your spirituality is a list of do's and don'ts that you do in order to be approved of or accepted, if that's your version of spirituality, there's one of two outcomes. Number one is you can't keep it. And some of you grew up under this. Maybe you had very religious parents or you grew up in a religious household where you were just constantly trying to live up to some standard and it was oppressive and you just couldn't do it and so you just ditch it. Maybe you show up at college or maybe you show up in a new city and you go, you know what? I'm done with this. I can't leave up to it. I can't measure up. It's too much. So I'm done. And you ditch it because it gets old. Or another version, and I think is maybe even more dangerous, is you keep the list. And you keep it perfectly. And so as you look around and see those who fail to keep the list, you judge them for their lack of commitment. And you look down on them because of their lack of discipline. And you, as a list keeper, see those who are less than you, and you disdain them, and your heart gets very cold. Let me be clear. Neither of those things is Christianity. So I could explain it again this way. If uh, we were to talk about what it means to be a husband, like when I became a husband uh, to my wife Donna, I I could have sat down and made a list. I've taken on this identity of husband. What does husband do? And I could have started to make a list. Husbands take out the trash. Husbands put gas in the car. Husbands protect the family from wild animal attacks. Uh, that's not often one you have to make good on, but you just go, you know, if an animal attacks, that's my ball. On it could go. But let me tell you something, folks. When I got married, we didn't leave that ceremony and me start to say, okay, what's first on the list? Uh, Kiss your beloved. Okay, and done. And number two is drive vehicle. Okay. I didn't start trying to conform to a list to meet a standard. We went to Jamaica. And we went to Hawaii, and we go on trips together, and we hang out at night together, and we tell stories, and we share our life, and I enjoy this woman who's covenanted to love me. Now, as I participate in the enjoyment of this relationship, I have found I start to do the things that would be on a list if I made a list. So I take out the trash, because I don't want my baby hand on garbage. I put gas in the car because I just want to set her up to win and whatever she's doing in life. And if an animal ever comes at her, it's got to come through me. And so I do these things that someone may do that was just trying to conform to a list. But do you see how different these two things are? 
One of them is conformity to a list to pursue acceptance. The other one is pursuing intimacy because I'm already accepted. And there's such a difference of spirituality. Spirituality is not conformity to morality for the sake of acceptance. It's a pursuit of intimacy with a God who has, has accepted me. They can look the same. You can be in the same room singing the same songs, but it's very, very different. And it's important we get this right. True spirituality is not a slavishly obeying principles. It's wholeheartedly loving a person. It's not about being good. It's about being God's that I am my beloved and he is mine. And the more I pursue him, the more I become more like him. You see it? And Paul is warning this Philippian community about this. And the reason I bring this up is we've been talking about this series on rest and wars. We've been talking about, you could use the language spiritual disciplines. I don't usually use that language because it makes the cultivation of intimacy with God sound like a discipline. I don't talk to my wife that way. Let us now participate in the discipline of date night. We will now commence the date. It's like, wow, that sounds really romantic. Um, but I do position my life to enjoy the intimacy that, that we have in our covenant. So we've been talking about how, hey, once you come to know Christ, there's all kinds of stuff you don't do. And then there's all kinds of stuff you do do. And so as we're talking about that, some may go, well, Ben, is this legalism? And Paul's going to say, hey, th there's a version of spirituality that looks like the real thing, but it's not. And it'll fail you and it's destructive. So let's try to make sure we're, we're understanding the counterfeit and the real. And so as Paul talks about it, he's going to make the point here that true spirituality is not a checklist of activity. And you see, he sets up this contrast in the first three verses. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That that's our guiding star. That spirituality is not the suppression of your desire for happiness. It's the maximization of your happiness by aiming it at its proper goal. So Christianity is not you trying to tamp down your passions. It's you aiming your passions at their chief end. He says, seek your joy in the Lord. That's what C.S. Lewis wrote to Sheldon Vonneken. He says, you know the Christian's duty is to be as happy as you possibly can. That I pursue my joy in the fountain of joy and whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's our job. And then Paul says, it's to write the same things to you is no trouble for me. He said, it's not bad for me to repeat this to you. He says, because it's safe for you. I preached this text in 2019. And I thought, should I do it again? I'm like, yeah, it's no trouble for me. And it's safe for you. It's important we get this right. And so true spirituality is not a checklist of activity. And he begins to warn about this group that's distorted spirituality. And you see it in verse 2. He comes at him with some name-calling. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's three times. Look out, look out, look out. Paul has identified here a group of people who have reduced spirituality to a checklist of activity rather than a pursuit of intimacy. And what they did is they had derived their checklist from the Old Testament law. They were not Jewish people. These were a Gentile audience, but as they were reading through the scriptures, they were sort of pulling out some of these activities that, that were a part of the enjoyment of God and making them a list by which one could get approval. And he looks at them and says, hey, what they're doing with their actions and attitudes is saying, if I obey all the laws in here, then I'm approved of by God. They're distorting the word of God. And so he looks at them and says, hey, this is the opposite of true spirituality. It looks like it. 
They're wearing the clothes, singing the songs, doing the things, but it's a counterfeit. And what's interesting is he uses critiques that people part of this religion would use against others, and he's turning them back at them. There were certain sects within Judaism that would call people that were outside of the faith and the one true God dogs. And he says, no, they're not the dogs. This particular group is. He says, what they think they're doing is good, but they're actually working evil. And then he says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In, in, in the Old and New Testament, there were people that to show their religious devotion would cut themselves, mutilate themselves. That, that still happens in many parts of the world today. And yet, uh, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of covenant with God. And he says, these people are taking a good sign of circumcision and they're turning it, rather than this symbol of my relationship with God, they're turning it into kind of a weird mutilation of the flesh to, to prove that we're religious by participating in these activities. So is Paul saying the law is bad? No, the Bible's not bad. This group here has distorted it to make it into a list of things I do, that if I do these things, then God approves of me. And if you don't do these things, he rejects you. Which is fascinating because some of you are here and some of you have friends like this. They've punted Jesus. They don't want to hear about Christianity because they say, ah, it's just a list of rules. You have a bunch of stuff you have to do and a bunch of stuff you can't do. And if you don't do that, then God's mad at you and everyone judges each other. But then they're hypocrites because they really do something. I don't want all that. And what's fascinating is they... They punt Jesus because of this Listianity, not understanding that the Bible punts this Listianity too. So when I hear people say that, I reject Jesus because of all these rules, you go, so does Jesus. We reject it together. So all right, let's get this right. And yet here it's interesting as he talks about this group, he says that dogs are the evil workers, mutilators of the flesh. What they're doing is distortion. It's not healthy. And then in contrast, he says, we are the circumcision which is a weird thing to say. I don't know if you've ever called yourself that or a group of friends. You don't see that often on a T-shirt or a coffee mug. Uh, why, why would he say that? What does he mean by that? And what's a true circumcision? What's a, what's a bad one? Like, what are we talking about right now? Well, it's interesting. You've got to look into the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 30, back in the Pentateuch, uh, says this in Deuteronomy 36, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And so physical circumcision was an outward symbol to, to show I'm in a covenant relationship with God, but, but the circumcision God cares about deeply, according to Deuteronomy, was, but this is a symbol of what I want to do in your heart, that I want to cut away the part of you that is disconnected from me, and so I want to give you a new heart and a live one that loves me, with all your heart that you may live. So this physical, ex it's not just about external activity, it's about an inward change. And he says, we are the true circumcision. We who are part of this, this assembly of Jews and Gentiles that have, that have come to understand it's not just about physical activity outside, it's about an internal renovation and change. We are the true circumcision. And then he gives you three participles that participate in that verb to show you how, what are the true circumcision? He says, we worship by the Spirit of God. We don't just worship with external physical activities. We worship from the heart because the Spirit of God has changed us. It's interesting. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 came to Jesus, and he was a man that had the, old, the Pentateuch memorized. He had the Old Testament memorized. He was a Pharisee, but he came to Jesus because he knew, I've, I've, I've done all these things, but I don't feel okay. And Jesus told him, you must be born again. 
And here Jesus points at the one moment in that man's life over which he had no control. Like, you know you didn't help your mom in your birth, right? We're all clear on that. You didn't pitch in. You were a passive participant in that experience of coming to life. And Jesus says, that's what it's like to really know God. You must be born of the Spirit of God. God must do to you something you cannot do on your own. And here Paul says that the true circumcision, those who've had their heart changed are those who didn't earn it, those who God has done something in us to change us, put his very spirit inside of us. And we glory in Christ Jesus. Our glory and our celebration is not in stuff we pulled off. Well, I've memorized this many verses. I read the Bible this often. I've done these sorts of things. I've gave this amount of money. He says, no, all of our glory and our celebrating is in Jesus who did for me what I could not do for myself. That our message is not do a bunch of external conformity to get the approval of God. It's, hey, look at what Jesus Christ has done. That he came for us. He loved us. He lived the perfect life we could not, died the death we deserved, and then rose victorious over death so that we might live. That's why we sing, by the way. You don't sing about moral conformity. That doesn't get you amped. I wake up early and read said literature. Like, no one sings about that. But you sing about a hero who came to get you at your worst and loved you and changed you. You sing about that. You, you never stop singing about a God like that. He says, we glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh. He says, this is not about us celebrating what we were able to do. It's fascinating. When I was in seminary, uh, they, they uh, had an assignment one year where I had to interview seven people who were not Christians, who would say, I don't have any sort of allegiance to Jesus Christ. And I was just interviewing them, asking, what do you think God wants from us? Or if you don't believe in God, what do you think the universe wants from us? Or if you're not sort of into that, what do you think people should be doing? Just what, what's the should that, that you think should drive the way we interact with society? And so I interviewed people from all different religious backgrounds or no religious background. And it was fascinating because over and over again, as I told people like, what's, what does God want? Or what's spirituality? Or what's a good person? It was inevitably the creating of a list. And, and I would say, well, what would happen if we fail this list? And there was some kind of judgment. It's fascinating. I even talked to one girl that was like, I don't believe in anything. She's just living her life in New York. And uh, I said, well, do you think there's a heaven? And I was like, she was like, yeah. And I said, do you think there's a hell? And she was like, no. And I said, so everyone goes to heaven? I was like, yeah. I'm like, what about genocidal dictators? And she's like, like Hitler. And she's like, well, no, not him. I'm like, okay, so, so now there is a hell. Uh, and and uh, well, then who all goes there? And she's like, I guess murderers? Oh, I'm like, okay. Um, so People who do bad things get punished. People who do good things get rewarded. What if someone did bad things, like all through their 20s and 30s? Is there any way for them to be redeemed while they still live? And she was like, no, I guess not. Not if they outweigh the... And she's like, man, what do I even believe? What am I saying right now? And I was like, I don't know, but it sounds terrifying. How do you ever know if you're okay? <laughs> I got to do these things to get acceptance, but I don't do it to punish me. Like, man, that is a very dangerous way to live. It's confidence in the flesh. Can I pull off what I need to do to get the smile of heaven? And that is not what Jesus Christ or the Apostle Paul are selling. And yet it's interesting. Paul here gets personal about it as he talks about himself. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. He said, if you want to create this scenario where you have to do things according to the law and to get the approval of God, if you're going to take the Old Testament and distort it in a way that I use it as a ladder to climb up to the approval of God, he said, if you want to put your confidence in what you've done, let me tell you something. I have more. He said, this isn't sour grapes. Like, I couldn't do it, so I'm disparaging you guys. He's like, no, this whole thing you're doing, I did it better than you. He said, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
And then he gives you four privileges and then three personal accomplishments. He says, let me give you seven reasons, which is fascinating because that was the perfect number uh, in the Old Testament. He's like, let me perfectly tell you why I was better at this game than you. And the privileges, he said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. These were Gentile guys that, that were trying to show their religious adherence by taking on Jewish practices. And so they got circumcised later in life. And Paul's looking and saying, no, man, God told Abraham to circumcise his son on day eight. He said, so I'm not some pagan who got circumcised late. I was circumcised on day eight. He said, I'm legit, man. I got the best circumcision money can buy. He said, I'm of the people of Israel. I'm not faking trying to adhere to the laws. I'm actually Jewish. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. He said, I can track my lineage. Even if you get into Judaism, not everyone can do that after the diaspora. He said, but I can. And not only can I, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. That was the beloved son, right? The only son born in the promised land. That's where I'm from. He said, and I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means I speak Hebrew. He said, there's a lot of Jewish guys that couldn't even do that. After they'd been carted off to Babylon and returned, they spoke Aramaic. He said, but I actually speak Hebrew. I'm, I'm legit. And then he says, I love it, his personal accomplishments. He cuts out all conjunctions, definite articles. He starts doing like Princess Bride, you know, like Plato, Socrates, morons. That's what he does. He's like, law, Pharisee. He's like, you want to know this law? I was part of the strictest sect in Judaism. I knew this law backward and forward. Zeal, persecutor. You want to talk about commitment? I was coming after people who disagreed with me. Righteousness under the law, blameless. He said, according to the list, I did it all. I did it all. He was like Martin Luther. Martin Luther said, if you could be saved by monkery, I, I would have been. I was doing it all. But then Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. He said, when I, when I took the word of God and made it into a list to try to earn God's approval, he said, I had done all these things, but all that I thought was in my gain column, I now move to a loss column because true spirituality is not pursuing religious activities. It's, it's an exchange of identity. Whatever gain I have, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. And let me tell you, some of you didn't grow up in religious backgrounds. Some of you did, like me. Like I grew up with people, great mentors who taught me about the love of God. But, but I, I found that as I got older, as I participated, I would get approval for, for doing certain things in religious context. And so I would chase that approval. And so I started using good things to try to chase other people's approval to feel good about myself. But if you're using religious activity to get the approval of others to feel good about yourself, then what happens when you fail? Well, you better not tell anybody. And so then you can develop a secret world and you either feel proud when you're excelling at the rules or deep shame when you can't live up to them. And you can get on a weird roller coaster of pride and shame and pride and shame. And there's no hope there. But what's fascinating is Paul said, I did that with God's word, but now I cast that away because of Christ. It's exhausting and some of you know this exhaustion to try to earn the approval of God. And you've labored to say the right things, do the right things, to somehow earn the smile of heaven. And what Paul's saying is that's not what God is looking for. And three times here, did you notice he said what you're doing is confidence in the flesh. Why do we do that? Why do we do things to get approval? He said for confidence, to feel confident about ourselves, to feel self-esteem, what do we do? We do it by what we accomplish but what happens? He says, that's the opposite of what God wants. And it's on shaky ground. It's on your flesh because you just might fail. 
And yet in verse 8, he says, but indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So notice he expands it. He's been talking about his religious experience of, of using the law to try to earn God's approval and realizing that wasn't the right way to do it. But then he says, everything's a loss compared to Christ. Some of you, your treadmill is not a religious one. The ladder you're climbing, you're like, I'm not climbing a religious one. But you have a list of things to do that if you can do them, you ascend to some place where you'll feel good about you. I'm not trying to earn God's approval. I'm just trying to ascend to this hierarchy at work. And so I can attain this kind of financial status. So these people think I'm a success to get this amount of fame. So these people will fear me and get this amount of power. So these people will do what I say. I'm trying to do these things to attain this space. And you're living just like this. And when you're succeeding, you feel proud. And as soon as you fail, you're covered in shame. And some of us, I think in this town, know exactly what that feels like. I'm trying to earn approval. And if I get there, I'm arrogant. And if I fall, I'm ashamed. And this is a terrible way to live. And Paul said, I did this with religion. Some of you are doing it with work. Some of you are doing it with fame and money and power or acceptance. You're chasing approval because of what you do. I need to find confidence because of my flesh. And it's so hard when you fail. But Paul says, I exchanged all that. For what? For the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He said, I realize this way of living has no answers. It's interesting, Jack Higgins is an author, wrote 60 novels, all of them bestsellers. You know how hard it is to have a single book be a bestseller? All of them. His number one sold 50 million copies. And so this guy, if, if, if writing books to ascend to the heights was the heights, this dude's at the top of the ladder. And they asked him, man, every single book a bestseller, 150 million copies. They're like, what would you tell your younger self? If you could go back and tell your younger self what it's like to be at the pinnacle, what would you say? And he said, I would tell that small boy, when you get to the top, there's nothing there. Lee Iacocca wrote in his straight talk. He said, here I am in the twilight years of my life, still wondering what it's about. But I can tell you this, fame and fortune is for the birds. Here was a man who was chasing fortune and fame and got both. And when he ascended the top of the ladder, he said, I have no more peace, no more confidence, no more esteem. This was the wrong ladder. And so here I am at the end of my life and I don't know what life's about. I'm gonna say his name wrong. Somebody help me. Alexis de Tocqueville. I never know how to say it. Say it like a Texan. Alex de Tocqueville visited America in the 1830s and recorded his famous observations about America. And he said, there's a strange melancholy that inhabits, that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of their abundance. And then his diagnosis was, the incomplete joys of the world can never satisfy the human heart. So they're chasing, chasing, chasing. And when you get there, there's no there there. And you realize this is the wrong wall. This is the wrong race. This is the wrong way to use the gifts, energy, times, passions God's given you. And so Paul says, I traded all that in for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I traded religious adherence for a relationship with a hero. 
And he says, and for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I actually did lose it all, but I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He says, I look at all this striving for approval. And he says, it's lost. Not only is it lost, he says, it's rubbish, which it's a funny translation. It's literally the word for uh, an extra biblical Greek text that's used of a half-eaten corpse or mounds of manure. He says, I look at all my attempts to get approval and it's just garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I was chasing, chasing, chasing somebody's approval, and I finally traded it in for the God who approves of me by grace. He says, I count it rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He says, that's what I want. I want to be the pebble sitting on the rock of the love of Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He said, I'm not trying to work, work, work to be right. He says, but I have the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ Jesus. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. I love that. He says, how do you be right with God? The righteousness God wants comes from God. He says, the righteousness from God that depends on faith in Christ. So the origin of being right with God is God himself, the basis, the finished work of Jesus, and the means that I trust him, that I'm looking for Jesus Christ to do what I could not do, to be who I could not be, and to make me what I meant to be. I'm exchanging a religious treadmill for a deep, loving relationship with my king, that I may know him, verse 10 and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings. That's what I know. All this chasing is not getting me anything, but I can be right with God by trusting Jesus and what he did. And it says that now I pursue not being right. I pursue knowing him and the power of his resurrection, that I see that this man talked like no other man did. He did things no one else could do. He claimed to be God himself. And when asked, what does the father want? He said, believe in the one he sent. And then he who knew no sin became sin on that cross. He said, I'm taking your sin and shame on me. I'm taking the burden you can't carry and I'm putting it on these shoulders and I'm letting that shame bury me in the dirt. And then he rose victorious. Sin, shame, failure does not need to define your future. And so he says, so I am walking out of this grave. And if you come to know me, you come to trust me, you get to know the power of this resurrection, participating in my sufferings, that your pain is buried with mine, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. He doesn't mean I'm trying to earn it. This whole passage is against that. He's saying, I don't even understand how this works, but I can be knit together with Christ and go where he's going. I'm doing that. I'm running with him. And so true spirituality now is not a religious activity. It is the pursuit of intimacy. He says, not that I've already obtained all this. He said, I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Do you see that? I love the language here because he uses the same verb three times, but we translate it a little differently. He says, I haven't already seized perfectly knowing God. He said, but I press on. I work to seize it because he seized me. So we're not chasing to earn God's approval. We're running to know him because we already have his approval. Jesus came to get me. He came and seized me. So now I'm pressing on to seize him. It's this beautiful divine game of tag. You came and got me when I was a mess and you changed me. So now I'm running after you to come know you and enjoy you and to run with you. So am I advocating doing nothing? You just put your faith in Jesus and then live like crazy. No, no. 
That would be like me coming and saying like, Donald will never leave me? Great, then let me just get drunk and mean and make a mess of this house. Like, no, that's, that's an abuse of this love. But I'm not trying to earn her love. I'm gonna now run in it and enjoy it. And as I enjoy her, I'm gonna start doing things that please her and I'm gonna press into that and really enjoy this relationship. That's what he's talking about here. Is there work to be done? Yes, but the motive means so much. It's fascinating. You know, I, I wrote this book, Rest and War, and I was talking with my kids about it at dinner one night. And um, one of my kids asked me, like, you wrote a book, so are we rich? <laughs> and I said, no, you don't write a book on sanctification to get rich. Um, and my son said, no, it's to be famous. And I was like, Wait, what? No, no. It's not for that. And as soon as I said that, I'm like, no, it's not about being rich. It's not about being famous. And as soon as I said that, my middle daughter goes, it's to express your emotions. I'm like, what? No, no. I realized this is making me question my whole parenting style. No, children. You don't write this book to get rich or famous or just to express my emotions. It's to help people. It's a resource to help people. That's why you write it. Now, does that matter to you? I mean, if, if it had the same words, same paragraphs, but I said, you know why I wrote this? To get rich and to be famous. You'd be like, ew. Even if it was the same words. But if I said, man, I wrote it to help people with what I understand about what, what it means to walk with God, you still may not buy it, but you'd probably like me more. You'd be like, yeah, that, that feels right. I support this endeavor. Right? Because the motive matters. Do you see it? And it's the same spiritually. Am I doing a bunch of things to earn God's approval? Paul says that is garbage, but there's something else. It's not activity to get acceptance. It's a pursuit of intimacy because I am accepted. And that makes all the difference. He said, I am chasing after him. Why? Because he came chasing after me. And so I don't consider that I've made it my own but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He uses multiple Olympic words. He said, it's not that I've become idle. He says, no, I am running. I am working not to get approval, but to enjoy the approval I have, not to try to earn his smile, but because I have it, I am going to do things. I am going to use my time, my energy, my resources to chase after God. Olympians harness every aspect of their life to be successful at their endeavor. They're, they're measuring out granules of sodium on their food, like, that was four grains of salt. This whole thing's ruined. You go start over. Like, why? Because they're trying to maximize every element of their life to succeed at their sport. And I watched the Olympics yesterday. Watched these snowboarders just careening with no concern about their health, zooming down these mountains. And right at the end of the finish line, they're thrusting the board out, just sending it, just to try to knock a tenth of a second off the time, straining towards that prize. And Paul says, that's me with intimacy with God, not to earn his approval, but because I have it. But because I have it, because I know God, because he loved me, I'm chasing after him. And so, yes, I am going to stop doing things that interrupt with that intimacy. And I'm going to start doing a lot of things, but not to earn his approval, but because I have it. Yes, I'm going to start to harness all my time, harness my energy, harness my influence, harness my finances, harness my mind and my affections, my life, so I can know the God who made me. 
Not to earn his approval, but because I have it. Not to try to become something that I'm not, but to be fully alive in him. I'm going to take the gifts he gave me to chase him. So yeah, I'm going to get some things out of my life that deter me from that. I'm going to put some things in my life that help cultivate the intimacy I'm made for. That's how I'm going to live my life. I'm going to strain after the one who came to get me. Because it's Olympics season, you got to bring this up. Uh, Harold Abrams and Eric Liddell had a famous movie about him, Chariots of Fire, which I imagine very few of you have seen. It was made a long time ago. But it's about the 1924 Olympics in France, and Harold Abrams and Eric Liddell, both runners, friends, but running from very different motivations. Uh, Eric Liddell was a believer, and he was running out of an enjoyment of a God who made him. Harold Abrams, there's a moment in the movie that's so tragic. It's right before his race. And right before he races, he says the line, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. That's what that run was. What I'm about to do on that field is meant to justify my existence. But then right on the eve of the race, he says, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. But even if I win, I don't know if I've done it. And some of you live that way, not with running, but with, I got to pursue this job. I got to get that career. I got to make this amount of money to, to prove my existence. But even if you get it all, is it enough? And there's a tyranny to that, even after he wins. But then you watch a runner doing the same races, but from a very different perspective. Eric Liddell came to know the love of God through the grace of Jesus. And he wanted to be a missionary to China. And his sister confronted him at one point, have you abandoned your missionary call to run some races? And he told her, no. He said, I'm going back to be a missionary. And if you know his story, he actually did die in the 40s, giving his life to be a missionary. And yet he says in the movie, and I love it, and I can't do his accent right, but I love to try. She asks him, why are you running this race? And he says, oh, Jenny, God made me fast. And when I run... I feel God's pleasure. I just love that line. I'm not running to earn anyone's approval. I'm already loved, but I'm going to run. Why? Oh, Jenny. Because God made me fast. And some of you, God has made you smart. He's made you sharp. He's made you creative. And you're taking those gifts and you're trying to use, use, use them to get the approval of somebody. And you're misusing gifts. Good gifts make bad gods. And the invitation today is, no, you got to trade that in. Say, yeah, you're not going to become less of you in Christ. You're going to become more of you. You're not tyrannized in religion. You're set free in Jesus. That's what he's offering here. But I'm going to take the gifts he gave me, take the abilities he gave me, and I'm going to run in the path of his commands because he set my heart free. That I'm not trying to earn someone's approval. I'm I'm not using public service to serve me, but I can actually be a public servant because I know what it is to be served by the greatest of all servants. I can actually use the gifts he gave me to bless because I'm already blessed. I can be an overflow into your life because I got a fountain in mine. That's the gospel. It's it's the yes from God to us becomes our yes to others. So how do you get right with God? It's through the finished work of Jesus that I trust him to live the perfect life. I can't. I trust that his death accomplished something, that he took my sin and shame and buried it. 
And when he rose, if I put my faith in him, God says, I'm right. My sin is gone. My shame is gone. That's in the past. And now I get to run with my king towards my God, racing into forever. Perfect? No, but straining for that prize to make him my own because he made me his own. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.